Well, what a great song and what a great rendition choir. Thank you so much uh, for that. And uh, what a beautiful weekend. I mean, today's not that great, but yesterday, huh? Wasn't it amazing? Gee whiz. You know what? I'm praying snow and zero degrees for the rest of you guys. All right. So just a couple things before we uh, uh, begin today. Uh, one of them is this has been a great weekend. The uh, elders got together uh, Friday night and Saturday for much of the day on Saturday. Just as kind of a session retreat over at Fort Bend. And uh, I was reminded in the midst of that of the importance of our praying for our session and for our elders. And the, and the importance of our encouraging them. So I hope um, that you all do lift up our elders in prayer. And I certainly hope that if you see an elder. I mean oftentimes elders only hear about things from congregation members when there's something that they don't like. And so uh, perhaps you can find something that you do like. And, uh, and perhaps you can share that with them and encourage them. I think that would be uh, very meaningful to them. I also want to make just a couple of announcements of some changes going on here to our building. Um, uh, we have a bathroom that's down by the children's, by the new Children's Welcome Center, and that's going to uh, be undergoing a renovation, so it'll be closed for a couple of weeks. So if that's your go-to bathroom, you'll have to find some other bathroom, but just to let you know that, but it's exciting to see some renovations. Also, our HVAC system in the choir and the sanctuary, or excuse me, what am I talking about? The choir room and the chapel is kaput. Which, that's not good news, but the good news is that we're getting a new furnace, so that's always exciting. Uh, and so that's going to be uh, starting this next week, and so just to let you know uh, that as well, and uh, we've put in some new lights. Uh, you probably have seen them. They're pretty bright going down in the children's wing, and so uh, we're excited to see some, uh, some kind of uh, cosmetic um, um, upgrades, and so we give God praise uh, for that. And today, of course, even more exciting than all of those things is the fact that we have our third grade Bible dedication. This is kind of an annual rite of passage that we have uh, for our children, and so we are excited about that. But before we get there, we got we to gotta preach. And so that's what we're going to do, and we're going to start by uh, looking at the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. And so I invite you to hear these words from the Gospel of Matthew. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And he fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that, you're, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him and suddenly angels came and waited on him. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we come to you this morning full of praise. Praise for the ways in which we see you at work in our lives. 
and praise for your presence even now. We thank you, Lord, for the, the song, the choir lifting us up as we worship together. We thank you for these third graders, God, who are um, receiving their Bibles today in this important day. And we pray, Lord, that those Bibles would continue to encourage them and strengthen them in the days ahead. I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. So the last few weeks as we continue the second part of our uh, True North series, we're talking about what are, how, how do the people of God, a people who have been claimed as Christ's own, how do we respond to this claim? How do we respond to the love and the grace of Jesus? And so we talked about the first week about how we worship and that a, a people who have been embraced by God or a people who then in response and gratitude give praise to God. And then we, we talked about how we should be a people People who are continually growing and being shaped more and more like Jesus. And perhaps to begin training, even just five minutes a day, we said a couple weeks ago. And, and then last week, John uh, was up here and he, he preached about the importance of our surrendering all that we have and all that we are to God. And today, today we're going to look at Scripture. And we're going to look at why is it important that we read Scripture, that we know Scripture, and, and how this is a response to our having received the love and the grace of God. And there are a lot of passages that we could look at that talk about the importance of Scripture in our lives and in our world. But I, I was particularly intrigued by this passage in Matthew 4 that I just read. The passage usually kind of talked about Jesus and, and Satan and the three temptations that Christ faced. And you're probably, most of you, many of you at least, are familiar with this particular passage. Jesus has gone 40 days without eating. Now, I can't imagine uh, that at all. Usually after about 40 minutes, I am ready to eat again, right? And so, and so 40 days, he's gone without eating, and all of a sudden, Satan appears, right? Now, you might have thought he would appear in the shape of a Twinkie or in something like this, right? But he doesn't. He appears in the shape of a being, right? And so there is Satan, and one of the interesting things to think about when it comes to Satan is that in the Greek, uh, the, the root word for that is, is diabolos, which is where we get our word diabolical, right? Devil, that's true. Good job. But also where we get our word diabolical, right? And so, uh, but it's also that root word diabolos is also where we get the word diaboline, which means to split. So in other words, it's been pointed out, what Satan is doing, what the tempter tries to do is to try to split us, tries to split us away from God and tries to split us away from one another. He tries to split, to divide us in our relationships with God and our relationships with others. And so Satan, the tempter, the splitter, the divider, appears before Jesus. And the first temptation, there he is in the wilderness, he knows that Jesus is hungry, and so he says to him, if you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. Now one of the most interesting parts of this, and perhaps the key part to realize in this temptation, is that very first word that Satan says. What is the first word? If, right? If you are the Son of God. 
And what exactly is the splitter trying to do? He is trying to sow doubt into Jesus as to whether or not he is actually the son of God. He is trying to get him to question his identity. Now you may know this, that this is all happening right after Jesus was baptized, right after he had been claimed as God's own, right after God had said to him, you are my son with, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And right after that, after then the temptation, all of a sudden Satan is trying to begin to make him question this. Is this really who I am? If you are the son of God, then do this. And that's really fits into what we've talked about a lot lately, which is our identity and how easily we begin to question our identity. How easily we begin to think that our primary worth comes from what we do or what we have. And yet again and again we see in scripture it's a thread throughout that your importance and who you are is rooted in that fact that you are a child of God. That you have been loved by God. And so what Satan is trying to do is to get Jesus to do something else to prove that he is really loved by God. God, right? In other words, he's trying to get Jesus to do more than just soak in the fact that he has been baptized by God and that he knows the promise that he is a child of God. He's trying to get him to do something else to prove what is already true. And see, we do this all the time. We may not know it, but we do it with great regularity, it seems to me. When I was growing up in the Pentecostal world, uh, uh, we would do this around speaking in tongues. And so I can remember uh, being in a worship service, actually more than one, and being there in the congregation and, and having uh, people surround me and pray for me and put their hands on my head and on my shoulders and beseech and beg. And do you know what they were beseeching and begging and praying for? That I would begin to speak in tongues. Because if I began to speak in tongues, then I would know. And then they would know that I was really a child of God. Until then, I couldn't just rest in my baptism. No, no, no. I had to also speak in tongues, right? Now, I've had a lot of therapy since that. So I feel like I'm on the other side, mostly. Now, we are much too distinguished to do that, of course. And so we do it in other ways, right? If we are successful, then we feel like God must love us and that clearly God's looking out because if things are starting to go awry, then we begin to question whether or not we're really loved by God. Or, or perhaps we come to Sunday morning worship in the hopes that if we do that, that then maybe, then maybe for sure we'll be loved by God. Or we begin to give uh, generously or, or, or we begin to do lots of different things as a way of trying and hoping that if we do that, then we'll know for sure sure. Now, none of those things are wrong in and of themselves, right? Speaking in tongues is probably not wrong in and of itself, right? Coming to worship is not wrong in and of itself. Giving generously is not wrong in and of itself, right? I mean, remember, Jesus did a lot of miracles with food, right? I mean, so it's not like he couldn't have done this, right? Jesus fed 5,000 with five loaves and two fishes. He turned water into wine, but Jesus refuses to do anything that would merely be an attempt to prove who he was as a child of God. And I want you to know that what Jesus does in that first temptation is give all of us a remarkable gift. Because if Jesus had turned that bread, turned that stone into bread, 
then we likewise would be spending much of our lives trying to do things in order to prove that we have been claimed and loved by God rather than resting in our baptism and in the fact that we are who God says that we are. We would end up spending all of our lives trying to worship God who is a taskmaster rather than the one who says, no, 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 I've already said this, you are loved and are my child. And that kind of life would be as hopeless, quite frankly, as any of us trying to turn a rock into a roll. I hadn't even thought about that. Did you get that? All right, all right, that's just, just popped up. So... So we are given a gift in the first temptation, okay? The second temptation that we see is that Satan then takes him up to the pinnacle, to the top of the temple, if you will. And he says, okay, throw yourself off of this temple. And then you kind of see the tempter with the sly smile, right? And he brings up some scripture, right? And he says, now, because if you do that, you know, it's written, scripture says that, 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 that the angels will catch you, that nothing will harm you. What's Satan doing here? What's the temptation right here? Well, one of the things that this reveals is this, that just because you use Scripture doesn't mean you're right. That just because you use Scripture or you know a couple Bible verses doesn't mean you are right. One of the critical things when it comes to Scripture is that we read it well, that we read it in context, that we read it within the overall themes that we see in the Scripture. John Calvin says that we need to use Scripture in order to interpret other parts of Scripture. We have to do it wisely. What I oftentimes see, if I can be so blunt, from the religious right and from the religious left are people taking their Bibles and using them in order to back people on the head in order to try and prove usually not scripture's point but their own point and what you'll notice at times is if you look at those bibles they have nicely cut out very important parts like love your neighbor love your enemy honor others above yourselves and put them by their bedside table it makes it much easier than to go out and to begin to use scripture however you want to rather than really discerning how is it that God is calling me to use this scripture? So we are warned in this second temptation to make sure that we realize that just because we use the Bible doesn't mean we are always right. We need to be careful when it comes to scripture. A third temptation, Jesus then, or Satan takes Jesus up to the top of the mountain and He looks over all the kingdoms and Satan says, all of the kingdoms can be yours if you bow down to me. Now the allure of this temptation is this. It means that Jesus gets the kingdom kingdom that he's hoping to bring and he gets to do it right then without having to suffer without having to be denied and betrayed and to sacrifice and to be put on the cross. In other words, Jesus gets to have the kingdom, if he says yes to this, without it having to cost him a thing, really. At least not any kind of real pain. 
One of the things that Jesus does when he says no is that Jesus realizes that the only way to really bring his kingdom and salvation and wholeness to a world that is messy and full of sin and brokenness is to actually engage with that messiness and with those people and in that struggle and sin. Dale Bruner makes this great observation. He says this, he says, if you look at, these par- if look at these temptations, it begins in the wilderness and Satan keeps taking him first to the temple and then all the way up to the mountain, further and further away from the messiness of real people, from the messiness of the world. Whereas the Spirit of God takes Jesus down into the wilderness, into the difficult parts, into the ugly parts of the world. What I am always fascinated by is how many well-meaning people, including Christians, it seems to me, whenever they have a sense as to things are wrong and we need to do this to make things right, how often their first inclination is to figure out how can we get more power? Whether it's political or military power, how can we get more power so that we can make changes? And I think that that's dangerous if we don't begin, actually, by simply finding the people who are suffering, those people whom we care about, and suffering alongside of them. Justice will never occur by our trying to figure out if we can get a little bit higher than everything and making changes. It always begins by our willingness to be alongside those who are suffering and that will cost us always but we will always be tempted to try to step away from that and make changes without getting dirty or without any pain to ourselves but Jesus says in this in this denial of the temptation Jesus says the only way in order to bring the kingdom of God is for us to be a people and for me to be a person who is willing to suffer and to sacrifice alongside the messiness and the dirtiness and the ugliness of this world. This is a great passage. It reminds us that we are continually being tempted to split away from who God is, from who one another is, and for whom God desires our world to be. One of the things that we talked about back in the fall when it came to our Genesis, we looked at Genesis 1 and then Genesis 3, is we talked about the two different worlds, two different stories, if you will. The story we have in Genesis 1 is this story right here. It's it's of God creating us out of love. It's it's of of Adam and Eve and and the beauty of them being made out of the love that God had, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's it's a beautiful scene of, of Adam and Eve getting along well with the world that was around them, right? They trusted one another rather than questioning one another. They trusted God rather than questioning God, right? That's this world over here, the lens, the story that we see in Genesis 1. And then over here in Genesis 3, we see the tempter again, this time in the shape of a 
serpent, right? And what does a serpent do? He begins to draw, make questions, right? He begins to say, you know, is God really caring about you? Does God really love you? And all of a sudden then, they begin to question that. They begin to question their own identity. They begin to question and distrust one another, as you may recall. And we talked about the fact that there are two different stories, two different worlds, two different lens through which to see this. And, and what we see in Matthew is the tempter saying, this over here, Jesus, this is the real world. Whereas you see Jesus over here saying, no, 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 no. This is how I see things. Right? And how is it that Jesus is not seduced into believing in this world over here? How is it that Jesus stays over here? Well, the easy answer is to say, well, because he is He's Jesus. But do you notice in the scripture that he never says, do you know who I am? What does he say every single time? It is written. It is written. It is written. Written. Why is Jesus able to stay within this lens, within this story that says you are created out of love by God? Why is he able to stay over here? Because he has been soaked in Scripture. John did a great job last week of preaching about how, how when you were a young Jewish boy at that time, when Jesus was alive, how you began to learn and to memorize and soak in Scripture, right? Jesus, from a young age, he knew Scripture. It had become his worldview. It had had become his lens, the way in which he saw the world. What scripture does, you see, is it provides the bones, if you will, to this world, to this way of seeing and understanding the world around you. This is what scripture does. It paints this picture of the kingdom of God through which then you can understand everything else that is going on in your midst. I think that's what makes Scripture so alive. You see, I've said this before, but I understand it's with good intentions that people talk about how the Bible is a manual for life. But that has never done anything for me, because by and large, manuals are incredibly boring. Right? And when do you use a manual? When you first get something, and if you're ever in trouble. Other than that, the manual stays up on a shelf collecting dust, or you use it for a doorstop, or you do whatever with it. But other than that, there is no great energy around a manual. But if we begin to see Scripture as starting to build this structure of this world that allows us to see one another and God and the world through the lens of this amazing kind of living and breathing world, which is what 2 Timothy says Scripture is, all of a sudden, it seems to me, it becomes much richer. That the Scriptures, that the words become, come off the page and begin to fill us. That's remarkably, that's a remarkable difference between being able to start living into and, and making more robust this view of the world versus staying over here and just picking up the manual every once in a while when you're in here and being like, okay, that's going to get me through the day, and then going on in the real world, as we say. So we have to be able to build up, to make robust our understanding of the world, and we do that more often than not through Scripture. But how do we do that? 
How do we make Scripture become alive to us and not just something that we use as a quick little morning devotion that we check off and then go on? Well, I think we get a clue in Jesus' answer to the very first temptation. Jesus says to Satan, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, as someone has said, Jesus is actually nourished by the word of God. It's not something that just stays in his head. It's something that he eats and that begins to work through all of his body. Eugene Peterson writes this book called Eat This Book, which is a great book. And in this, he he talks about how the word in the Old Testament for meditation, to meditate on my word, which the Old Testament says uh, several times, is that really in the Hebrew, the literal translation is not meditate on that word. It is growl. And what he means by that, what he says when he says it's growl, he says it's a bit like a dog Right? This is not like a dog kind of growling at a stranger. It's like a dog growling with his bone. And if you've ever had a dog and you've ever given the dog a bone, you'll know that when the bone is really good, that the dog just begins to growl. It's like this growl of pleasure, if you will. Right? And if you continue to think about the Scripture as a bone, it seems to me that oftentimes what we do Right? Is that sometimes we just look at the bone like this, right? And we just, this is what we do. We say, hmm, milk bone. That should be helpful today. And we put it in our pocket and then we go on. Whereas what the scripture says is, no, no, no. This is what it's supposed to look like right here. Look at that guy. He is content that this is how we are supposed to use Scripture, that we're supposed to chew on it and rip it, and at times maybe get, I don't mean to be gross, but a little bloody at times, and just to kind of really dig into it with pleasure to to growl over it. And this is a metaphor that's used again and again in Scripture. I mean, Jeremiah, Jeremiah says, when your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight. Ezekiel is told to eat the scroll and have it fill up his stomach. In Revelation, John tells us or that he decided to not just, or he was told not just to read the book, but to actually eat the book, right? Peterson says in the book that, that, that the word of God got into John's nerve endings, into his reflexes, into his imagination, that it is when you eat the scripture, if you will, that the scriptures don't just inform you, that they transform you. That when you begin to growl on the scripture, that it doesn't just help you to know more, it helps you to become more. That this is what it means to eat and to digest. That the only way to build up this robust understanding of how God sees everything is to growl and to chew on scripture. Which then begs the question, how do we do that? How do we, how do we, how do we do it? How do we, how do we look at Scripture? How do we growl and chew on it? Well, there's lots of different ways. And I realize that I'm in danger here of using too many metaphors in one uh, sermon. But I'm going to do it anyways. As I was thinking about it, it reminded me a bit of what I were to do if a neophyte came up to me and said, I want to know basketball. I want to ingest 
basketball. I don't know anything about it, but I want to know what do I do. And so what would I tell this person? Well, there's lots of different ways. The first way, though, I would say is you should find a coach, kind of a grizzled veteran of a coach, if you will, and just sit down with him or her and let that person begin to kind of tell you about the game because that person is going to bring up things that you would never see if you just sat down and started to watch it. Right? And I think that the, 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 the equivalent of that, what I would call, is a good commentary and a good commentator. Now, now, if I weren't a pastor, I'm not sure I would even know what a commentary was, and I'm pretty sure I would never read one. But what I discovered over the last decade or so is that a good commentator is worth his or her weight in gold. I mean, it's amazing the things that they can begin to bring up. Now, look, all commentators, just like all coaches, are not the same. Right? You may not want a commentary, you know, that yells at you and begins to throw chairs and stuff like that, right? See, uh. Right? So what I've done is, is when you leave this place today, I, there, you're going to get a little card, and it has some, some recommended, some commentaries that have meant a lot to me. Now, again, you may not like this particular coach. It may not be the one who speaks to you, and so you may need to find another one. That's fine. This is just a suggestion. But one of the things that you can do, and you don't sit down and read like five chapters at one time and then read through a commentary. It would be way too much. But take a few verses and just begin to soak in it and to reflect on what the commentator is saying to you. This is one of the ways to begin to growl over Scripture, to do more than just kind of, you know, check it off a box and move on. I think another way, another analogy it seems to me uh, for something we can do is, is like if you're trying to learn basketball, there's great fun in getting together with a group of buddies, if you will, and watching the game live or watching it on television. Why? Because everyone brings their own perspective. Everyone brings their own experience, right? So they'll, they'll come and they'll have their own kind of tendencies, and it helps to open things up, right? Sometimes they might say, oh, that was a good call the referee made, or that wasn't a good call the referee made. IU Purdue. Anyways... And so getting together with a community, getting together in a group of people is always helpful in terms of chewing over the Scripture. That's why we have Sunday school classes. It's why we have home groups, so that you can come together and do more than just kind of read Matthew 4, 1 through 11 as a passage. But tonight or next, tomorrow or some other time in this week, you get together with other people and talk about that. That helps to make the Scripture alive. Here in two and a half weeks on Ash Wednesday, we are going to start as a church reading through the Gospels during Lent. It takes you mostly two chapters a day, sometimes a third chapter. And we're going to have a blog that we're going to do. There are going to be ways for you to contribute online. We're going to even have something here probably once a week that you can come and gather and talk about the Scripture. But it's yet just one more way of beginning to chew on, beginning to growl over Scripture. I think the other way, of course, or one other way, is that if you really want to learn basketball, you know what you got to do. you got to play the game. Right? You got to get out there. You got to feel the basketball. You got to bounce the basketball. You got to hear what it sounds like when you squeak the floor bottom. You got to see what it's like when, when you're taking on somebody else. Right? The other thing, a theme that we talk about with some regularity because it's so important, is that if you really want to growl on Scripture and ingest Scripture, you have to actually play the game. You have to practice it. It will not just happen. Right? The only real way to know what it means to love your enemy is if you go out and love your enemy, right? Uh, there's a, Julian Green uh, has this great quote, and, and, and you, may not, you may not get the illusion if you're not as familiar with the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God begins to give the Israelites a bunch of manna. 
right, which is bread from heaven. And, 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 and he says to them, you can eat all of that, but don't store any of it. Don't try to keep it to yourself. And they do, right? And what happens as they begin to, as they keep collecting it, it begins to rot, Right, So Julian Green has this great quote that I want you to see. It says, The story of the manna gathered and set aside by the Hebrews is deeply significant. It so happened that the manna rotted when it was kept. And perhaps this means that all spiritual reading, which is not consumed by prayer and by works, which means practice, ends by causing a sort of rotting inside of us. You die with a head full of fine sayings and a perfectly empty heart. That's a great quote. The way for us to ingest the scripture is for us to practice it and continue to growl. Sisters and brothers in Christ, the Bible gives us a language. It's not just a manual. It paints us a picture. It gives us a structure for a new way to see the world. And if Jesus, it seemed, needed to use that scripture in order to not be split apart or to begin to question his own relationship with God, then surely it might be good for us to begin to ingest it as well. But it will not just happen. We have to chew, to growl. One of the things that our, uh, our, our parents of our third graders are going to say to our third graders today is that they hope that the Bible will penetrate our souls. That they are hopeful that the Bible will penetrate their souls. It doesn't happen with an arrow. I wish it would. It happens only when we are willing to chew and to ingest day after day and week after week. And my hope and my prayer, brothers and sisters in Christ, is that we would be a people who would be willing to ingest, be willing to chomp, be willing to growl over the Scripture. That in so doing, we might taste more and more of this beautifully tasting kingdom of God. May it be so. Amen.